This week on the show, we read the FreeBSD status report from the fourth quarter of 2021 for you. A reproducible clean home directory in OpenBSD using impermanence is an interesting idea. Making RockPro64 a NetBSD server. Hello System has version 0.7.0 released. The lazy approach to FreeBSD dual booting, going to jail, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 449, Reproducible Clean Home, recorded on the 23rd of March 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you would like to support this show, if you like it, then check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Welcome. BSD family and friends, with fresh headlines, we open this episode as always, and this one captures or presents the FreeBSD quarterly status report of 2021, the last quarter, that is, uh, with a bunch of entries as always, so it's always a big thing to compile these, but uh, the people who are behind this deserve our gratitude, and also the people who submit these uh, reports. Uh, yeah, the heading is uh, short and sweet. This report covers FreeBSD-related projects for the period between October and December 2021. It's the fourth of four planned reports for 2021 and contains 19 entries. The highlights include faster boot times, more LLDB work, a base open SSH update, and more wireless development. Yeah, so the first update is from the FreeBSD Foundation. and talks a bit about their fundraising efforts and about some of the work they have going on. Uh, during the fourth quarter, the foundation staff and grant recipients committed a total of 472 source changes, 98 port street changes, and 11 doc changes, uh, representing 41, 41, and 13% of uh, commits identified by a sponsor. Uh, and they also worked on a bunch of other projects, including uh, fixing AVX bugs on AMD64, uh, crypto improvements for WireGuard, uh, enhancing the Intel wireless driver support, uh, the LLDB debugger improvements, updating the base systems version of OpenSSH, uh, and adding some new uh, syscalls, including SCED get CPU, memory barrier, and RSeq, uh, as well as improving VDSO support on AMD64. Yeah, they also support uh, continuous integration and quality assurance efforts, the FreeBSD infrastructure, as well as doing FreeBSD advocacy and education. And they have a long list of uh, things. I remember 2021 wasn't big on uh, conferences, but they were still at certain events online and had a presence of sorts in many of these more fame familiar or bigger conferences that you probably have seen. So that's good to read as well. So many of these efforts weren't possible if you wouldn't have donated to the FreeBSD Foundation. So thanks for that and keep doing that to support more work like this. Then there's a section on the ports team, the ports collection. Uh, this is the ports management team is responsible for overseeing the overall direction of the ports tree, building packages and personnel matters. And they have over 46,000 ports in the ports collection now um, with a bunch of uh, open ports PRs. Uh, that's, uh, well, that's given by that number of uh, ports overall. 
Uh, they welcomed Jus Michels, hopefully that's correct, as a new committer and said goodbye to Kuriyama and F. Joe. They were also changing the port manager team uh, itself. Adam W. stepped down after five years of service and TC Burner is now a full member of port manager. So thanks for the incoming and outgoing uh, people who would um, yeah, support this uh, effort. Yeah. And then across the main and quarterly branch, uh, there were over 10,000 commits by 166 separate committers. Wow. That's a lot. And th in just the one quarter. And these are the people there who are make... also some infrastructure changes. Yeah. These are the people who make our ports so easy by just doing package install or make install in the ports tree. And it's just amazing that it's working and you don't have to do a lot of extra steps most of the time. They added new uses frameworks. So uh, tools that depend on things like image magic and Node.js uh, are now able to use that to handle that dependency easier. And uh, Node.js also allows you to specify a version. So you can use, uses Node.js and you can say equals LTS if you want the LTS version of Node.js. Uh, they also added the triggers keyword uh, that allows package to, to run certain processes when actions happen. Other big change is that the default version of Postgres bumped up to 13. Uh -huh. Good to have. Uh, so that's that. And then obviously there's all the other normal big package updates, new versions of package, Chromium, Firefox, Ruby, Python, et cetera, et cetera. Oh yeah, the big ones. Yep. The documentation team uh, worked on their stuff, uh, updated the copyright file in the root directory um, of the docs repo and made sure the dates on that were right. Worked on the mailman infrastructure in the docs tree, make sure all the information about mailing list is correct. And it's been updated as we migrated everything from mailman to MLM MJ. Uh, and some very old lists were removed and a bunch of other stuff was made to improve the English documentation. Uh, the docs set for 12.3 was tagged, updated all the ports and packages for docs, moved the contributor files to the root uh, shared directory that's shared between the docs and the website. Uh, added an option to the documentation make file to uh, archive and compress the documentation so that uh, the versions of that will be available on the FTP site and uh, worked on experimental support for EPUB, like uh, ebook output for the books and articles uh, from the documentation. Mm -hmm. More importantly, um, the FreeBSD website revamp, uh, the web apps working group has spun up, uh, is in, in charge of creating new FreeBSD documentation portal and redesigning the FreeBSD main website and its components. Um, there's a Slack channel for it, uh, for people to want to get involved, but it involves redesigning the documentation portal, which is now complete. Uh, you might've noticed if you go to the docs, they look much nicer mm -hmm. now. Uh, they created a new design that was responsive uh, and has a global search. So it also means the documentation will work on your phone much better as well. Uh, they also activated an edit link in the documentation, uh, pointing to GitHub so that it will encourage people, you know, if you see something wrong in the documentation, there's an edit button you can hit and you get taken directly to the markdown and you can make a couple of changes and click a button and that'll fire off a pull request. And hopefully that'll make it much easier for people to contribute to documentation. Even if we're not actually, you know, clicking merge on GitHub, it makes it easy for people to create the change and easy for somebody to try to land it as well. Mm -hmm. So now they're working on redesigning the uh, way man pages are displayed on the website and uh, trying to to better support for newer mandoc. I think our current uh, man.cgi doesn't support some of the newer macros. And I know the some of the ZFS man pages don't display everything because of that. 
They're also looking at redesigning the ports part of the website and then eventually the uh, main website with a new responsive theme and also uh, probably a dark theme. Support <laughs> because well. why not? <laughs> They've not started on that one yet. <laughs> yep. Then the projects category has um, various uh, entries there. For example, enabling ASLR for, uh, or by default, actually, for 64-bit executables. And this is the address space layout randomization, which is an exploit mitigation technique implementing the majority of modern operating systems. Uh, that basically involves randomly positioning the base address of an executable and the position of libraries, heap, and stack in the process's address space. Although over the years, ASLR proved to not guarantee full operating system security on its own, this mechanism can make exploitation more difficult. And the SemiHalf team has made an effort to switch on the address map randomization for the position-independent executables, or PI, P-I-E, and non-PIE 64-bit binaries. So this patch uh, was merged ahead and the ASLR feature became available or enabled for all 64-bit architectures. Additionally, the mentioned change disabled SBRK or SBreak in order to allow utilization of the BSS grow region for mappings. It has no effect without ASLR, so it was applied to all architectures. Yep. And then Colin Purcell worked on some boot, uh, boot performance improvements. Uh, so Colin is coordinating an effort to speed up the FreeBSD boot process. Uh, for benchmarking purposes, he's primarily using uh, the boot time of a EC2 C5.xlarge instance type as a reference platform and is measuring the time between the virtual machine enters the EC2 running state, as far as the API says, and when it's possible to SSH into the instance. Uh, the work originally started in 2017, and he made a bunch of progress and then uh, stopped for a bit, and then now he's back at it. Uh, in general, the FreeBSD boot time uh, was reduced from a couple of minutes now, and it's down to uh, 15 seconds. So I think in September of 2021, it was about 30 seconds, and now it's down to just 15. Uh, further improvements have shaved more time off the boot process, taking it down to roughly 10 seconds. Mm. Uh, and there's a further four seconds of improvements that are in process, meaning we get it down to six seconds between uh, the system start and being able to SSH in. Cool. Absolutely. So in addition, uh, the userland boot process is now being profiled uh, by a system called TSLog, making it possible to see flame charts of the entire boot process. And the EC2 boot bench tool is now able to generate an MP4 video of the boot process by taking snapshots via the EC2 VGA console. So you can actually see what's happening. Uh, issues are listed on a wiki page. Uh, there's a link there. The wiki page is also instructions for performing the profiling. So if you want to test it on uh, a different type of machine, and so users are encouraged to profile their boot process and see what might be different from EC2, uh, because you know EC2 is mostly emulated, so it might not have all the same hardware uh, as what your physical machine might have. Hmm. Very good. I mean, in the rare cases where you actually have to reboot a FreeBSD box, it will be, if you have these patches, then uh, much faster. Yeah, uh, it depends. With hardware, oftentimes the, the bulk of the time is spent before the OS starts. Yeah, detecting uh, Or changes. before the loader even happens. Ah. Yeah, is it whatever the firmware does for a while. And then if you have a lot of disks, if, if the, the firmware is, is firing up the, the HBA, the disk controller, and if it supports booting from RAID, then it's going to, you know, spend a lot of time initializing all 144 hard drives connected to the machine. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I'm going to turn that off. I will off not speed do a memory a check every time this system boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And things like that. Uh, 
But yeah, you know, especially the time from like the BIOS boot select menu through to the login prompt is where all this work is going to make a big difference. Yeah, less time to get coffee. Um... <laughs> then we have other work here with the LLDB debugger improvements. So being able to use the LLVM debugger instead of GD, uh, the GNU one. And uh, it's expected that most of the changes they've uh, introduced will ship in LLDB 14. And that was sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. There's also some work uh, at Semihaf to support the NXP uh, LS1028A and 1027A SOCs. So these are dual core uh, ARM Cortex A72 processors. Uh, the like the time sensitive network capable Ethernet controllers, uh, which is interesting. And they looked at adding the driver for that called ENETC uh, improvements to the HD or SDHCI driver to improve the performance of that, uh, as well as support for the, the SPI NOR flash and uh, some thermal sensors and, and the real-time clock and that kind of stuff that's on uh, this NXP hardware. And then, as we mentioned at the top in the Foundations update, there's more details about the uh, MEM barrier and uh, RSEC um, new syscalls. And then there's a detail update about switching the version of OpenSSH in FreeBSD. Uh, from version 8.7 to 8.8. Uh, especially uh, note that updating to 8.8 .8 disables the SHA RSA signature scheme by default. Uh, there's uh, more information on the mailing list about that, but also adds support for FIDO and U2F devices. And that's now enabled by default in the base system so that you can use U2F uh, to do multi-factor authentication when you're logging into FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. Good. And then there's details on the, the VDSO or virtual dynamic shared object support that was added and what that means. There's also updates for the Amazon Elastic Network Adapter to improve that. And then more details. I think sure lots of people are interested in the Intel wireless driver support. Oh, yes. Uh, trying to get the latest AX210 chips uh, working properly on FreeBSD. Uh, there's also the kernel crypto changes for WireGuard, uh, adding support for X cha cha twenty poly thirteen oh five etc. and just overall improving the performance of that. Uh, and then ports. There's also big updates to KDE, um, the office suites, and then there's also some other interesting uh, third party stuff, including uh, Hello Systems, which we'll talk about later in the episode, uh, and new versions of Pot Putluck and Potman. The uh, kind of jail management and orchestration tools yeah so thanks everyone who worked on these and submitted a report so that the world know what you are working on and many of these have testing uh call for testing uh via well calls and if you would like to do these then get in touch with the people that are listed there next up is a reproducible clean home directory in openbsd using impermanence this is over on Celine's data swamp, although this is a shared domain, not, not only her swamp, but uh, she uh, keeps blogging here and that's why we put her repeatedly on the show. And she writes here, introduction, let me present you my latest projects, home-impermanence. Under this name is a reference to the NixOS community project Impermanence. 
The name may not be obvious about what it is doing, so let me explain. So she links the NixOS wiki about impermanence and the home impermanence for OpenBSD. Uh, the original goal of impermanence in NixOS is to have a full, a fully reproducible system mounted on tempfs where only user-defined files and directories are hooked into the temporary file system to be persistent, such as varlib, varlib and some etc files, for instance. And so why is this something achievable on NixOS? Uh, on OpenBSD side, we are far from having the tooling to go that deep. So I wrote home impermanence that allows a user to do that at their home directory level. And what does this mean exactly? When you start your system, your home directory will be mounted with an empty memory-based file system like MFS and symbolic links to files and directories listed in the config file will be done in your home directory. Every time you reboot, you will have the exact same set of files. Extra files created meanwhile will be lost. And when you hold a dollar home directory for long, you know you get many directories and files created in various, uh, you know, tilde slash dot config or tilde slash dot local or directly as dot files in the top level of your home directory. With impermanence, you can get rid of all the noise. A benefit of that is that you can run software as if it was their first time running. In some software upgrades, you will avoid old settings that would create troubles or settings that would disturb a whole class of applications, like a GTK setting affecting all GTK programs. With impermanence, the user can decide exactly what should remain across reboots or disappear. And uh, implementation of notes are my implementation is a Perl script relying on some libraries packaged in OpenBSD. It will run as root from an RC service and the settings done in rclocal.conf, uh, rc.conf.local this way. Um, it will read the configuration file from the persistent directory holding the user data and create some links in the target directory to the files and directories, doing some sanitizing in the process to prevent listed files to be included in listed directories, which would nest symlinks incorrectly. So she chose Perl because it's a stable language. OpenBSD ships with Perl and the very few dependencies required were already available in the ports tree. Program could easily be ported to Linux, FreeBSD, and maybe NetBSD. The mount underscore MFS calls would be replaced by a mount tempfs, and the directory symlinks could be done with a mount bind or mount nullfs, which you don't have on OpenBSD. If someone wants to port my project to another system, I could help adding the required logic. She provides also instructions how to use that and how to install it, as well as a bit of configuration uh, for it, not much, but definitely a good start. And she shows a resulting home directory, how that would look like with a lot of symlinks in there. And if you want to roll back, uh, she also writes, it's easy, disable impermanence, move home slash persist slash user to home slash user, and you are done. And concludes with, I really don't want to go back to not using impermanence since I tried it on NixOS. I thought implementing it only for $home would be good enough as a start and started thinking about it, made a proof of concept to see if the symbolic links method was enough to make it work. And it was. I hope you will enjoy this as much as I do. Feel free to contact me if you need some help understanding the setup. Yeah, it's an interesting idea because even with, you know, ZFS snapshots, this actually lets you separate out the bits you definitely want to keep and the bits you don't. Whereas a snapshot, you would go back and lose every change. Mm. Whereas, you know, for example, you want the, the directory in your home directory that has your email to persist. And the one that yeah. maybe has your browser profile, maybe you want that to persist, or at least your downloads you want to persist, but not the other stuff Or you don't want the downloads to persist, but you do want, you know, your profile settings for your browser. Um, and things like that. So this is a very interesting idea. And I, I, I agree that it could be interesting to see where it would make sense to do nullfs versus not uh, on FreeBSD. Although, you know, just the symlinks uh, maybe is good enough and uh, 
allows a bit more of it to be done uh, without requiring as much root access. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in the future you can say you have the impermanence to do this on the home directory. Um, <laughs> no, no, uh, we definitely appreciate the work here and maybe other BSDs adopt it in a certain way. Okay, news roundup this week has making Rock Pro 64 a NetBSD server. This is over at NetBSD's blog. And they write here, uh, Matthew Green posted that, the time has come to upgrade my Sunblade 2500S to something more power friendly and faster. I'd already remove one CPU and thus half the RAM from two of these systems to reduce their power consumption, but it's still much higher than it could be. After much searching, I decided on the Pine 64's Rock Pro 64, 4GB RAM model, Technically only 3.875 gigabytes, but yeah. Pine64 make SBCs, laptops, phones, and various other mostly ARM gadgets. And the Rock Pro 64 has the latest CPU. They ship the Rockchip RK3399 and use a small NAS case that is sufficient to house two HDDs and at a stretch up to six SSDs. Cooling would become quite an issue at this point, he says. Okay. Uh, in my SATA setup, I have three SSDs with a Jmicron uh, 585 card in the PCIe slot, two SSDs in the NAS case SSD region, and the third is in the HDD region with an adapter. I've used two SATA, uh, two SATA power splitters to convert the NAS cases to SATA power ports into four, with the fourth one also powering a Noctua case fan. Cabling is not great with this, with enough SATA power cabling for six devices to lay, Probably a bespoke power cable to connect to the Rock Pro 64 would make this nicer and probably improve cooling slightly, but I'm just using off-the-shelf components for now. And so he says, in the last year or so, I've been working on making NetBSD ARM64 big endian more featureful. In particular, I've added support for the other endian access disk labels, FFS file systems in the NetBSD libsa, the look 64 sectors later for rate frame partitions in MIEFI boot, the x86 specific EFI boot has more extensive support for this that should be ported over, uh, other endian access to rate frame labels in the kernel, and updated the U-boot package and feature set to include HCI slash SATA support, work around some bugs, and fix the newer U-boot SPI loader location, figuring out how to default loading from either SATA or NVMe. Provides a couple of examples as well, like installing the U-boot into an SD card, and yeah, quite a good start. I think with that, people should be able to make their Rock Pro 64 their own little server for various tasks. They say uh, there's not too much that's special about this setup uh, compared to any normal NetBSD or ARM system. Uh, while they built uh, their installations by hand using the standard NetBSD ARM images uh, should be suitable for this task. It's easiest to start from the SD card with the Rock Pro 64 U-Boot already installed. There are two U-Boot images available, one for SD slash EMMC and one for the SPI flash. Uh, they note that there is an odd problem with the early SPI loader that requires a portion of the image to be different. Uh, the package source packages, uh, sysutils slash U-Boot Rock 64, or Rock Pro 64, version 2022.01 has been a suggested method for installing a U-Boot image. And so they just show using DD to write uh, the RKSD loader uh, to the right offset on the flash, uh, and then how to write the RK spy one to the spy flash instead. Uh, when booting from NVMe or SATA, 
uh, you must drop to the U-boot prompt and adjust the boot target's value, and then put the um, SCSI for SATA or NVMe ahead of the MMC or USB options. So if you do printm boot underscore targets, you can see the priority list and you have to reset it to make uh, your devices be higher on the priority list. Uh, it says note that E or sorry, MMC one is the SD card slot and MMC zero is the built-in eMMC. Uh, the PIXI and DHCP options are for netbooting and the SF zero attempts to load uh, more U-boot scripts from the SPI flash. Uh, currently, there are some minor issues with the Rock Pro 64. It has no ability to use ECC memory. It only comes with the one PCIe 4X slot, and the Rock Chip Errata limited this uh, PCIe slot to 1.x, though no NetBSUs encountered any issues with uh, having PCIe 2.x enabled. Um, it is possible to use a PCIe bridge, uh, although they have never done that. Um, so no promises there, uh, but that would allow you to plug more devices in for booting or enabling, you know, network and storage devices. Okay. Alan already teased it a little bit in the other article. Hello system seven. Oh, no, no, not seven. Zero seven zero is here. Not that fast. And uh, although the screenshot is from a German speaking system, uh, it definitely shows you a good impression how it will look like. Very Mac-like. And the core system says that it's now based on FreeBSD 13.0 release. Entirely new architecture for the live system. Like boot time of live system has been improved by a factor of three. Uh, ISO size has been reduced to under 800 megabytes to fit a CD-ROM. No more copying of the entire live system to RAM. No more initial RAM disk. No more reroute. Using uzip compressed UFS file system image instead of a ZFS for the live system. And starting the graphical desktop early in the boot process. Okay, cool. Hello System is now Ventoy compatible, which means that it can be booted from an ISO file stored alongside other ISO files on disk using Ventoy. Thanks, Ventoy. So they provide a link to uh, the Ventoy. Yeah, we've talked about uh, Ventoy before as a, a kind of something you could put on an external hard drive and have it have a whole bunch of different uh, images on it and let you pick from those uh, when you boot it up. Kind of like... Um, I don't know if you ever saw it at BSD can. A couple of people had them. They were a little like US, uh, external laptop hard drive thing that plugged in with USB. It had a little screen and a wheel, and you could flick through different ISO images and pick Ooh, one. No, and I didn't you plugged see it those. in, it pretended to be that ISO image. Cool. Um, this is kind of the same thing, but done in, as open source software, where you can have uh, you know external USB hard drive, put all the ISO images on it, and when you boot it, it's like, which of these ISOs do you want me to boot? Hmm. Very nice. Cool idea. Uh, they have also developer files, including the compilers, headers, object code files, etc. Now in a separate download, they improved the compatibility with all the NVIDIA graphics hardware by shipping multiple versions of the NVIDIA drivers, and the XFET file system is now supported as well. Changes were also done to the user interface, uh, the filer, the command line tools, utilities, and they have a section under constructions, uh, like a new update utility to apply FreeBSD patches without any questions asked and to update all packages without any questions asked as well. A new burn optical disk utility you can look forward to. New download architect applications, applications utility to download additional application bundles as well as a new install Debian runtime utility to prepare the system for running Linux applications. So this is coming in the future, um, but it can be exciting when they finish that. Very cool. 
Uh, known issues listed etc os dash release hello system specific entries are not applied and firewall workstation configuration is present thanks to robonaki but not enabled by default in order to not interfere with services like the zero conf and other network device discovery protocols very cool nice update i think i should give it a try very good uh next up our friend uh, ruben has a new post over his uh, ruben nerd blog his lazy approach to FreeBSD dual booting. So he says, Brad Alexander emailed asking how I dual boot my FreeBSD workstation that doubles as a Linux Steam game machine. And then he says, I must confess, I use the BIOS boot menu. I used uh, to use Grub, but lately I've decoupled OSs to their own SSDs. Uh, the FreeBSD NVMe drive boots by default, but striking F11 at boot brings up the motherboard's boot override menu, where I can select the SATA drive that has Linux on it. There are a few advantages to this approach. Uh, no further configuration after installing each OS. Drives can be physically removed, upgraded, wiped without affecting all the other OSs. And it's less uh, stressful OS upgrades because you don't inadvertently wipe the bootloader from the other OS. Also, faster boots to a primary uh, previous DOS since you don't have to go through an extra menu unless you're opting to, to hammer the F11 button. And he says the biggest drawback is you need two separate drives or four if you want to run mirrored pairs or anything like that. Uh, it might prove expensive if you're on a budget and it's your primary computer. My aging Skylake board only has one NVMe slot, which means a mirrored Z-pool would only write as fast as SATA, and so they're not bothering with that. Uh, the Ryzen Z570 boards they're looking at will have two NVMe slots uh, that will run at comparable speeds, so they're looking at that in the future. Um, on my laptop, I use... Uh, a tool called Refind uh, yeah. that basically installs as an EFI application. So it's only installed on the EFI partition. Uh, and then it lets me pick uh, from multiple operating systems. Uh, and I just have it set to have a, a short delay before defaulting to FreeBSD. Uh, although with the way EFI works now, um, and since FreeBSD and, and Linux and so on both support writing to their own directory and, and creating stuff, so you can basically use the EFI boot MGR tool on FreeBSD to manage the list of what will show up in that boot select menu. Uh, and you can have both Linux and FreeBSD in the list and have it, um, you can decide which one you want higher on the list and so on. Um, and the EFI boot manager also supports one-time settings. So you can say, if you're running FreeBSD right now and that's your default, but you want to boot Linux, you can do EFI boot MGR and tell it, you know, boot option number four from the menu next time, but only one time. And then when you reboot, it'll start Linux automatically. And, you know, especially on uh, remote machines where you have to sit there and try to time hitting F11 at the right time during boot, because you only have like three seconds, but boot will be like, gonna wait with nothing on the screen for like two minutes and then show a bunch of stuff. And then if you miss the window, you got to reboot again. And it's another five minutes. Being able to say, you know, I want you to boot this specific option next time only without changing what it boots every time can be really handy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay, then we have an article, going to jail. Well, this is kind of a teaser where, where this is going. Uh, open on OPEC Tech and OPEC with two Ks, we found a nice tutorial for Basti BSD. And so we thought, hey, why not cover this? Uh, they um, first cover installing Basti BSD with Duas. They do Duas package update, upgrade, and install Basti in this order. 
then they activate uh, Basti with sysrc, Bastille underscore enable equals yes. Then set up the IP networking. Since they only have one IP, they use the local loopback. So they clone the interface, LO1, and do give it a nice name, Bastille zero in this case, and then uh, let the service native clone up, uh, create this device. Then they show how to uh, make changes to your pf.conf for the uh, redirects into the jail or outside of the jail via the host system. Straightforward configuration. And um, they allow certain ports, 80, 443, 22, and 51820 for the WireGuard VPN. And, you know, networking uh, typical ports uh, are open in this. And then once you enable PF and start that, you can uh, run your little uh, network in the Bastille. So when I tried P uh, Bastille the other day, I think I mentioned this um, in one of the, <laughs> the other episodes I recorded with Tom Jones. It turns out it raises the security level of the jail to two. And I was getting very weird errors until I figured out, okay, in this secure level, you cannot do much, but why do they do that into an empty jail? I cannot do much this way. Uh, but once you found out, then that's fine. Um, then they show how to create a couple test jails. And uh, yeah, they highlight here, they're going to do some cheating here just to show how awesome jails are. Instead of building from scratch, they will simply tar the database and Nextcloud from the home server to the cloud. Then we'll simply tar all the websites and caddy file from the host to the jail. Then they modify the PF and SSH reboot and everything will come up in jails on the VPS. This method, which I did not use the first time, worked so well, I did not even have to turn off my uptime monitor and there was no downtime beyond a second for the reboot. This is so freaking awesome, so here we go. They describe basically the whole setup for Nextcloud or their database that they have. And we thought this is straightforward enough with every step shown here that you can basically follow along. Very nice. Another happy customer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, we're less happy about the next parts. The feedback and questions section is empty this week. Oh. Feedback and at bsdnow.tv is the email address where you should send all your BSD-related questions or feedback or show ideas, topics, everything that's on your mind uh, so that we can fill this part in future episodes. Uh, we have a note from our editor here. Uh, no feedback emails this week, so instead we can have story time with Alan and he can regale us with an entertaining BSD story. Do you have one? Hmm. <laughs> that's hard to <laughs> that's say. That's kind of an impromptu part, but well, that's what you get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, thinking back on the past couple of weeks, uh, my the biggest story there was just it was more of a networking one and mostly a boy. I wish that that server had been BSD instead of Linux. Oh yeah. <laughs> had a had a very interesting one where you know we. Reinstalled one of the machines, uh, moving it from CentOS to Ubuntu, and everything was fine, and it was good. And then we upgraded the second machine beside it, and suddenly that machine had really high packet loss, and like to the point where it was hard to install the packages under Ubuntu. Mm. But the the first machine was having some issues too. Suddenly, there was a third machine that was still CentOS and it had no problem though. So it wasn't something with the provider or something with the network was somehow Ubuntu was just not good at having a, a, a link aggregation, having two one gig NICs bonded together. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. Actually. And then eventually I managed to 
struggle through just many, many tries and get it to install TCB dump. That's you know, another thing where it's like a trick on every itself. BSD TCB dump is built in because you can't do anything without TCB dump. So why isn't TCB dump included? Um, and then I noticed that the, the second machine was seeing some traffic that was supposed to be destined for the first machine. Uh, I was like, why is this machine seeing traffic? Like the switch is, it should be smart enough not to send that traffic to the wrong machine. Yeah. I was like, that's weird. So I'd look around a little bit more and I'm like, what could cause that? Yeah. Eventually I figured out what the problem was. Both lag interfaces or bond zero, they were called on Linux, had the same MAC address uh, <laughs> across two different machines. So every time one of them sent a packet, the switch would update its config and says, oh, that MAC address is on port four. Uh, and then the other machine would send one and say, no, that MAC address is on port three. And so it would cause this packet loss where like we'd send out a, a request to download TCP dump and then the other machine would say something and the switch would send the reply to the machine that hadn't asked for it, which would just ignore it and be like, I didn't ask. For I'm dropping dump. that packet. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Because uh, they were different IP addresses, but they ended up with the same MAC address. So how did that like happen very in the So it turns out that unlike uh, what CentOS and older Linux did and what FreeBSD does, where when you create a link aggregation, it basically copies the MAC address from the first port and sets all the ports to be the same, uh, Ubuntu is generating a its own MAC address, kind of a like random one, uh, which is fine. Um, and it does this in a way that's, uh, consistent so that when you reboot, you'll still have the same MAC address, but it turns out it's based on the machine ID file, which is like basically the host ID file, ah, yes. um, but they call it machine ID. If that doesn't get updates. Uh, and because of the way we had ZFS image, the servers, they had the same machine ID file. The file was identical. Yeah. Yes. <sighs> and so they generated the same MAC address. Um, we've been doing it this way for a while, but never two machines that happen to be plugged into the same switch. Hmm. And so we had never, never had that before. Noticed this problem. Huh. So that's not really a BSD story. What's a good BSD story? It is actually a BSD story. It's a pro BSD story too. Yeah, right? but you know, <laughs> the the same thing could have happened with like two beehives on FreeBSD if you did things just right to cause them to get the same MAC address. Sure. Yeah. So it's it mostly a networking story of you know basically what I had done was almost like an IP conflict. But in a way where the machines wouldn't complain in the log file that, hey, somebody stole my MAC address. Yeah, or just after uh, a new machine comes up, make sure to refresh the MAC address. Right. And so what basically how I found it was running, you know, ARP-AN mm. and looking at the list of things and realizing that these two machines both thought they had the same MAC address or both did have the same MAC address. They didn't fight the over it. Yeah. <laughs> and again, comes down to the fact that on Linux, if config and ARP aren't installed by default. That's the problem. And like, like I know you can use ip adder and ip link and i still IP haven't learned these commands neighbor. i think it's ip neighbor is the one that gives you the equivalent of arp but um you know i'm old so it's i, I mean I like it's ARP. ip adder it's ip adder show and i'm always looking up these commands on a few occasions i'm on a ubuntu system um luckily i have this in a playbook now that i don't have to touch the machine very much um but it was kind of difficult to figure out, hey, how do I debug this without debugging tools on the network, without a network? <laughs> and then you're so grateful going back to a BSD system and like, ah, everything is here and I can use it 
right away. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure Linux people feel the same way coming over to FreeBSD. Just anytime it's not the system you're used to, you have things like that. It's a bumpy road, yeah. Because, you know, it, it's also the same way, like, we, we hit a Ubuntu system and be like, there's no TCB dump by default? What is this crap? Uh, <laughs> but I'm sure that lots of Linux users, when they hit a FreeBSD, which has no packages installed by default, are like, oh, where's this tool and that tool and this other thing? Where's my bash? Yeah, that's probably very common. Uh, but it's it's just interesting. Mm. Uh, but yes, that was some fun network debugging. Um, BSD story, I guess. The only one that comes to my head is a really old one, like 20 years ago? Well, that's okay. Almost 20 Nostalgia. years ago. Uh, so it was like FreeBSD 4.5 or something like that. Um, and this was just, a, you know, kind of newbie mistake slash tab complete. Ah, we've all been um, there. <laughs> so I was running a, uh, a commercial shell server. So people would, back then, uh, virtual machines were slow and nobody used them. Uh, and so, like, there was no hardware acceleration. Um, so instead of renting a VPS for $5 that gives you 512 megs of RAM or a gig of RAM or whatever in your own IP address and all this, uh, people would pay me 5 to $15 a month for just a non-root SSH account on my server that had 512 megs of RAM shared between like a hundred people. Very entrepreneurial of you. <laughs> um, so we had that. I think that market uh, has gone down in the meantime. Yes, that market has gone away because you can rent <laughs> an entire machine that size yeah. for $5 and have root on it, which, you know, is a lot different than, uh, you know, paying $10 a month to be able to leave, uh, you know, an egg drop bot or a, an IRC bouncer running on my FreeBSD machine. Mm. Um, although back then, you know, I had to have... Uh, a chunk of IP addresses with the result, the reverse DNS was set to something funny. So when you logged into IRC, it would say something witty or crass as it was, <laughs> you know, as a teenager. <laughs> and it was, it was the early 2000s. But anyway, um, somebody had, uh, you know, stopped using their account or whatever and, and given it to somebody who decided to try to exploit the machine. Mm. Of course, being that kind of script kitty or whatever, uh, they were trying Red Hat exploits on my FreeBSD machine. And so they weren't working. Uh, but there was some path of uh, resolution bug in, uh, like, this is Red Hat, like, nine, eight and nine before REL. Yeah, so like, 20 yeah, years ago. Like 20 years ago. Um, and so they basically had a, a symlink to Slash that had a really odd name with a bunch of special characters in it. And by accessing files that way, I think you could bypass the requirement to be root to read the files or write the files or something like that. There's some kind of exploit that allowed you to do things you shouldn't have been able to do. But it didn't apply to FreeBSD. But in their account, when I went to clean it up, I saw in their home directories, there's this weird symlink to slash that shouldn't be there with a bunch of weird characters in it. <laughs> so when I'm running the rm command to, to, to delete this symlink, I use tab complete in my shell because it would type out this weirdness for me. Yeah. That, no that was fine. Stuff. But because it was a symlink to a directory, it helpfully put a slash after the name of the symlink so that you could tab complete something that was in that directory. The next one, yeah. Yeah, but I was trying to remove the symlink. And so I just hit enter and I didn't backspace the slash off the end. I... So this meant remove, you know, rm minus rf slash. Why was I running dash R or dash F? 
no good We're reason to that. just finger memory <laughs> yeah i was like i never wanted to promise it's always r it's like no if i'm trying to move just a sim link there shouldn't have been a capital r or a, a lowercase r in there at all yeah. and probably didn't want the dash f anyway um and so then it's been a couple seconds the command hasn't returned yet that's weird that's probably not good <laughs> control t control t then, then uh before i can do that i see a, a message fly by not able to delete slash lib slash you know ld dash so or whatever uh because it's immutable i'm like oh shit uh control c c c c control c stop this thing uh yeah oh, by the way this is over 56k dial up so like the the, the the ping time for control c is like 500 milliseconds or something it was bad anyway um yeah so then it's like ls command not found i'm like oh no balls um <laughs> uh, Luckily, Bacula's file daemon that does backups of this machine was still running. Oh, that's... Oh, so I started a restore job to restore, like, slash bin and slash sbin and slash lib. Uh, tools. And then because the daemon is still running, and so it had the files open, uh, all those libs open, it was still able to work, and it managed to install some stuff. And luckily, I also figured out that slash rescue hadn't got hit alphabetically yet. Uh, and so I was able to use that to get LS and MKDIR and so on uh, temporarily and managed to get the restore done. Um, and we got the restore done and all of the system working again without having to reboot and losing the, you know, hundred and something days of uptime we had. Because mm -hmm. back in the early 2000s, like the number of days of uptime that the shell server had was one of the main features, like selling features that people looked for. Yeah. Even though it was kind of silly. <laughs> so like we only upgraded we only rebooted when it was like time to upgrade from FreeBSD 4.5 to 4.6 yeah the major like ones once like twice a year where, where we did reboots or whatever um so yeah we got everything restored uh and no one noticed didn't have to reboot and mo people didn't notice i think <laughs> somebody who was logged in at the time might have been very confused when ls didn't work for about half an hour but then worked again but uh yeah backup saved the day uh, and got the machine going. <laughs> and of course, you know, this was ZFS was still being written on a whiteboard at that yeah, point. Yeah, so there were, no, there were no snapshots. No, UFS didn't support snapshots yet either, <laughs> uh, which is how you probably would have recovered from that today. Uh, or, you know, just untarring the, the release tarball over top of your system yeah, to get those files back or whatever. Back then. I mean, you could do a, uh, what are they called, dump and restore? Right? Or what are right. they called? Yeah, but that doesn't let you kind of... Well, maybe it does, but, you know, I would want to pick certain files out and only restore them, not everything. Mm. Yeah. There's only so but much damage. anyway, uh, <laughs> it all worked out well in the end. Uh, so it's important that no matter how much RAID you have, you also need backups and lots of them. So, so I, backups, they will save the day. Yeah, if so for one reason or another, I when I delete sim links, I use unlink instead of rm because it's kind of like I created the sim link and so I should unlink it in certain ways. But it's basically the same command now. And yeah, I think they're actually hard linked together mm -hmm. even. But it's kind of like okay, it's a link. It should get a special command to treat it and unlink the two. <laughs> but it's a good point because the the unlink variant of the command, at least according to the man page, doesn't support the dash r flag. Oh yeah, that could Although, yeah, that could prevent you from bad things. Yeah. Accidentally recursing. Especially when you link to some crazy position that you didn't intend it to when you created the link and then Yeah. Ah. Okay, happy ending. <laughs>
Okay, that was story time with Alan. And um, if you don't submit more, well, now what happens? People won't submit anymore and want to hear more no, stories like that. You have like to that. submit questions. <laughs> you can submit the question with, you know, tell us the story about this. Or, oh, yeah, you know. requests even. <laughs> yeah, you can do requests. But uh, if you don't send anything, we'll just delete this section from the show. Yeah, it will be a very short this uh, end of this. And a lot of people look forward to these because they usually have like sysadmin type stuff or uh, BSD questions in general. So no one uh, should be hesitant to submit these. I mean, we're not picking out people or uh, say, oh, this is a bad feedback or a good one, or this is a bad question or so. We try to answer as much as we can i mean we don't know everything but we have a lot of experience and hopefully if we can't answer then someone else in the community can help out and we'll link it in a future episode we should mention our sponsor for this week tarsnap the online backups for the truly paranoid for the people who are never uh, had an issue losing their data this might be why would i have to do this no this is probably happening to you sooner than later and why not make backups while you still can Tarsnap is a solution from Colin Percival, who wrote his own uh, backup service. It has a very competitive pricing model. Uh, you can start charging up with uh, like $10, and depending on how much data you store, uh, you will probably go with it for a long time until you realize, hey, this is, this is actually quite good for a $10 initial uh, charging up my account. And um, yeah. So you get you never get a surprise bill, as Alan always mentions. Uh, you always know what you are um, paying for. Check out Tarsnap. There are plenty of clients available for various operating systems, BSD, Linux, macOS, uh, Windows subsystem, or subsystem for Windows. Um, <laughs> never used those, but it's available. You can look at the source code. That's the truly paranoid part. If you find something in there, Alan has a little bounty out there for anything from typos to really... Um, architectural problems you might encounter but there are not because a lot of people looked at them already and uh, yeah figure out the documentation on the website it's quite easy and walks you through making backups uh, sooner rather than later because it could be uh, any second that counts so that's it for today uh, we thank you for listening and stay tuned for next week where we have another one <laughs>